Where is God? Why has God forgotten me? I wonder if there's anyone feeling like that today. Has God forgotten me? You know, when life goes well, we don't really ask questions like that, do we? Um, By the end of Genesis, I doubt that Jacob and his 12 sons were asking such questions. Despite their cruelty to Joseph, God had been at work to move them from a, a famine into a abundant provision in Egypt. As Joseph had risen in prominence to become uh, the, sort of the number two in Egypt, they received a great welcome. They were given some of the best lands to graze their flocks in and to settle their family. Great days indeed. And as verse 5 tells us here in chapter 1 of Exodus, 70 people came to live in Egypt and there they prospered. Here are people then, living their lives in fruitful abundance, as verse 7 declares. Um, But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Food, families, work, and freedom. The good life. But Egypt, in the end, was no heaven on earth for God's people. Verse 8 marks this dramatic change when everything turns. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. All that past gratitude for for Joseph's wisdom and administration that had kept the land and the region alive uh, was forgotten. Suddenly, the growing immigrant community started looking like a real security threat in Egypt. And so God's people found themselves there becoming slaves with harsh taskmasters who brutalized them as they were in forced labor made to build store cities in Egypt. And the hostilities grew and grew and people faced the terrible threat of the murder of their own children. And jumping ahead to chapter 2, we also read about an individual, Moses, making a terrible blunder in his adult life, a catastrophic mistake that takes him from living in the palaces of Egypt to being a shepherd in, in the back wilderness of nowhere. It's not often in the abundance and prosperity that we ask the, the big question about where is God, but it's exactly in these times of failure and of adversity, of suffering and, and pain that we are tempted to ask the question, has God forgotten us? Has he forgotten us? What's going on? Does God not care about our helpless situation? Well, look with me at these final verses again of chapter 2. Very important verses. Chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and God was concerned about them. Or it could be translated, and God knew. See, it felt to God's people as they considered those years of slavery that God had forgotten them. And it it appeared to them that there was a day in history when God began to act. It seemed like a dramatic moment to them in his dealings with Israel. Up to that point, it felt as if God... Uh, had not remembered them. But chapters 1 and 2 are written to show us that God never forgot them. That even in those dark days, God is still at work. He was still at work then. And even in our dark days, God is still at work today. 
See, when things are tough, we often pray for some big miracle to happen, to sort out our problems. And there are times in history, aren't there, when God has done dramatic things. Plagues, Red Sea crossings, miracles, resurrection. But more often than not, as these opening chapters remind us, uh, God is at work more secretly, more silently, behind the scenes. He is moving and shaping events to fulfill his purpose. And the theological word for that is providence. God is providentially at work. In the darkness of our, of our human experience, God is providentially at work in the lives of his people. And so what I want us to do this morning is to trace God's hand of providence here. And I hope that it will give encouragement to each one of us to see and to believe that even in the darkness of our current context, God may yet be at work. You see, what does Pharaoh represent? Well, he represents humanity that is utterly opposed to God. I mean, what did God say to Adam and Eve in Genesis uh, chapter 1? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, There's God's first command. Get on with it. Have babies. Subdue the earth. Fill it. And what does Pharaoh say? Chapter 1 verse 9. Look, he said to his people, these Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And we have three attempts by Pharaoh to attack God's people in, uh, in, in chapter 1 and 2. Verse 11, he tries to make them slaves. Verse 16, he commands the midwives to carry out infanticide on the Hebrew male babies. And in verse 22, he he makes this law that permits genocidal acts against Hebrew male children, that they can be thrown into the Nile without impunity, without problem. And here in Pharaoh, we see the nature of fallen humanity. God gives the command for life. Be fruitful and multiply. Man, in his fallen rejection of God, seeks a culture of death. Here in Pharaoh, we see a fallen sinful man writ large, you know, capable of great glories, the pyramids, the civilization, uh, writing, scripts, and yet built with great cruelty and oppression and pain. And if we're horrified at uh, Pharaoh's tactics here, then we need to remember that this culture of death is really what marks uh, enmity with God, and it is something that's deeply embedded in our British culture. We're rightly shocked, I think, to hear about 200,000 or 220,000 people who were killed in the earthquake in Haiti. It horrified us, and it should. But in England and Wales alone, over 200,000 abortions take place, took place in 2007, and the rate continues to rise. We live in a culture of death. We have the highest termination rate of pregnancies in Europe. And the more secular and socially liberal a society becomes, then birth rates fall in those cultures while abortion numbers rise, and then we start talking about how we can euthanize our old people. This is the culture we live in. And it is a mark of the fact that we are sinful human beings and we are in rebellion against God. And some commentators have noted how bizarre it is that as Western European civilization 
uh, at a time of its greatest wealth and technological development is choosing a pathway to self-extinction. We have birth rates which cannot sustain our cultures. Incredible. What's wrong with us? Capable of amazing technological feats. You know, you can actually... They've been doing surgery on little babies with spina bifida in the womb to fix the issue so the baby's born healthy. Isn't that amazing? And yet another part of the hospital, hundreds of thousands of babies are being killed. What's wrong with us? What we need to see in these early chapters is that there's a great battle taking place. And... It's not a battle so much between Moses and Pharaoh or Israel against Egypt, but it is God against Pharaoh, the man who was worshipped as if he was God in Egypt. You're the issues in the, in the book of Exodus. Who is actually God in Egypt? Who is actually God over Great Britain, over Europe? To whom do the people of Israel belong? Should they be serving and worshipping Pharaoh? Or should they be serving and worshipping God? And despite all of Pharaoh's efforts to contain the Hebrews, God's providence preserves a people. We've, done, we've moved on a few points back there on PowerPoint, by the way. Uh, here we are, great. God, God's providence that preserves a people. Did the burden of slavery subdue this people? We'll look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed... The more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So what can we, to what can we attribute this amazing birthright for the sense of Jacob that we see here in verse 12 and back in verse 7? Well, I, I want to suggest to you it's this. Here was God's blessing being worked out. Uh, God had promised to Abraham that he would make him into a, a great nation. And so each baby that came from that point on, was evidence of God's providential grace. And these people who just kept having babies and filling the land, God was at work in every child that was born. And did the plot to get the midwives to kill the, maybe, the male babies, did that work? Well, in God's providence, he, uh, he, he, he chose, Pharaoh chose midwives who were very brave who were not willing to do his dirty work, who who sought to frustrate his plans. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. (laughs) I mean, these women were incredibly brave, weren't they? To stand before Pharaoh would have been a terrifying thing. And and then to have actually um, disobeyed him. And to utter utter those words, well, I'm sorry, just the Hebrew women are just got great muscle tone and I'm sorry I mean it must have sounded a bit implausible don't you think but they had the courage to say that to say that very brave now what gave them the courage to do that well verse 17 makes it clear they feared and served God in their workplace more than they feared Pharaoh And ironically, God's blessing upon these women for their disobedience is that they give birth to even more Hebrew babies. Whatever Pharaoh does, it just goes wrong. Never doubt that God knows how to preserve a people, even in the greatest opposition. 
in Spokane, uh, we uh, used a, a church building that was later uh, donated to us as a church. But before that happened, uh, there was a few churches that rented that space, and there was a Russian-speaking congregation, and there was one great memorable Easter Sunday where we invited the uh, Russian choir and the pastor to come and sing some songs and to, uh, to share with us a little bit. And many of these were first-generation immigrants who came over from Russia because of the persecution. Ronald Reagan allowed, many of them were Baptists, basically, that Ronald Reagan allowed into the country because of the opposition they were facing, the persecution they were facing. And the pastor, through a translator, addresses a congregation to tell us that uh, how hard the Communist Party had tried uh, to, to defeat the Christian church. And then he said, but the Christian church continues. Communism has collapsed. See, God knows how to keep his people. But God's providence is seen here not only in preserving a people, but in preserving a savior. See, after hearing Pharaoh's third command to all the people of Egypt in verse 22, that every boy that is born to the Hebrews should be thrown into the Nile... We focus in on, on, on one particular marriage and one particular son. And to just try and enter into this story a little bit, I mean, how desperate those, those final months of pregnancy must have been. Those early uh, three months of, uh, must have been to have tried to keep their beautiful baby a secret from the Egyptians. And in the end, it was the parents who cast this child into the Nile. But they surround him with a floating basket, a tiny little ark, to carry him on the waters that would have otherwise killed him, a bit like Noah in the flood. And consider God's providence here. Extraordinary. But who should come out of the palace but the princess to come and bathe at the Nile? And she spots the basket, and the lid is opened. And instead of turning the contents into the Nile, her compassion is aroused by this crying infant. In God's providence, this princess, incredibly, agrees to pay the baby's own mother. What a winner! <laughs> Paid to raise the beautiful baby boy that she loved. She would have gladly done it for nothing. Here is God at work in protecting Moses and uh, and also in, in, in arranging the circumstances of his life that would shape him to be the man that he was being called to be, to be the savior and leader of his people. Consider this amazing. He had the opportunity to be raised as a Hebrew under the protection of Pharaoh, who had intended his death. And it's clear that his parents raised him in a believing home where he was taught about God's dealings with them as a people, that he knew about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because when God speaks to him later, he, he pronounces himself in such a way. Moses knew who he's talking about. He'd been told about the amazing promises given to Father Abraham. And parents, I think we should know here that the primary responsibility for teaching uh, our children is, is in our home. We're the ones who are tasked with the primary responsibility for teaching our children God's word, of, of teaching them God's promises, of reminding them of the gospel, of, of encouraging them to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to make uh, the Bible clear to them, to teach them sound doctrine. That's, 
That's something that we want to help with as a church, but the primary responsibility is in the home. Moses got to be raised in a believing home, but then he also got the finest education in, in Egypt. Amazing. You know, there's a slave boy getting the best education in the land, in the royal courts, to help him to understand the very institution that he would one day be called to challenge. And by the time he had finished there, he was to all around him uh, uh, an Egyptian. I mean, that's what is said by the seven daughters of, of Jethro. Uh, an Egyptian saved us. You look like an Egyptian to them. What an incredible story of protection. And the media would have delighted this story and just called it very lucky, wouldn't they? How lucky. The truth is, it was divine providence. God is at work. The sovereign Lord is actively involved behind the scenes of history here. And I know that some of you struggle with very difficult circumstances, very bleak situations. And I want to encourage you to meditate on, on, on these chapters and, and see here the mysterious nature of God's providence. For 400 years, they were there in Egypt. Generations came and went, experiencing nothing but slavery and pain and adversity. But God was at work. God knew. God cared. What a terrible day to have to put your baby in the Nile. What horrific situation would cause you to take your darling baby and do that? Not knowing what was going to happen. But nothing less than the circumstances they faced would have caused them to do that. And by that very situation, God brought about this incredible event of raising Moses in this environment. How strange is the providence of God. We struggle with our eyes and our brains to make sense of it. It doesn't make sense to us, and yet God is at work. William Cowper, or Cooper, I should say, uh, suffered much depression, and uh, he, he penned these words. Uh, I think they've been turned into a hymn, actually. But this is what he says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but... Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That is a profound insight, isn't it? Such is the mystery of God's providence that we should not despair, but trust him for his grace. God was preserving a people and God was preserving a savior for his people. But this, this savior needed a lot of shaping, didn't he? Uh, chapter 2, verse 11, jumps us many years on in the life of Moses. We get two snapshots of, of Moses at the age of 40. And both really show us that Moses was being shaped to be a deliverer, a rescuer. You see in 2, verse 11, that Moses was a man of compassion for his people. He, he had not forgotten his roots and his people, even though he was brought up in, in the palace. And he can't take it seeing an Egyptian mercilessly uh, beating a fellow Hebrew and so he steps in to rescue the man and either he doesn't seem to realize his own strength or he gets a bit out of hand and he ends up killing the Egyptian and you think that the very people that he had rescued would have been grateful 
But the next day, he tries to intervene as he sees two Hebrew men hitting each other. And it's the same word that is used of the Egyptian beating the Hebrew slave that is used of the Hebrew beating the Hebrew. This was a vicious beating. And it flags up for us that the problem for the Israelites was not just that they were enslaved by Pharaoh. Their problem was that they were enslaved by sin. The fundamental problems that we have as a society uh, are not just political or uh, educational. They cannot just be fixed by changing um, the prime minister or better laws or better education or changing political structures. Our problem is that we have sinful hearts. That's what we need to get dealt with. And so we see this Hebrew man beating another one just as harshly as the Egyptian overlords. And while Moses is going to be used by God to free them from their physical slavery, here's an early early indication that he can't free them from their spiritual slavery, from their slavery to sin. Look at their response in verse 14. Who made you ruler and judge over us? This is dripping with irony because, of course, this is exactly what's going to happen. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? A rejected savior whose attempts to liberate a few individuals falls flat, is forced to flee the country and get away from an angry pharaoh. And then the second incident, in chapter 2, verse 15, we find Moses by a well in Midian. It's very interesting to reflect on all the things that happen around wells in the Bible. Very interesting. Wells are the place to be. And uh, there we see in verse 17, seven daughters of a local priest watering their flocks. And again, in embryo form here, we see the bigger purpose that God has for him. He will be used by God to deliver his people. But there were some important humility lessons he needed to learn first. He had 40 years in a palace. And then 40 years learning to take care of another man's sheep. And then God says, well, it's now time for you to take care of my sheep. My friends, imagine this. Maybe the greatest thing that God has got for you to do doesn't happen until you're 80. I say this to my oldest brothers and sisters here. They may be looking back to the glory days of the past. Maybe you haven't even done yet what God really designed you to do. <laughs> Imagine that. My real work starts at 80. Everything else has been a preparation for that. Could that be true for some people here? The greatest days of your, of your purpose for God are, are just these days now? What a thought. It was true for Moses. And I wonder, do the circumstances of our life just look out of control? An overbearing boss. A life of pain and groaning. A dangerous community. A life-changing mistake. A loss of possessions or standing in the community. Well, we should read these chapters and take courage that God is still on the throne. God is still in control. And His good providence is still at work in our lives, even now. See, this God is the same God. In your circumstances, even now. Now, can you believe this? Can you see this? He's working his purposes for you. And I know that he, that he is because we have a better savior than Moses. Jesus taught his disciples that he fulfilled everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7, he, he makes this speech before he's stoned. And he says this, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. 
Moses prophesied a a, a better prophet, one like Moses that will do something far greater than even Moses did. And so in history, we were looking for that person. Well, Jesus is that person. And I'd encourage you maybe uh, today over, over dinner, have a chat. Compare and contrast Moses and Jesus. The New Testament is doing it all the time to show the superiority of Jesus. But there are very interesting parallels between the two stories. The story of Exodus is the story of the deliverance of God's people, but these real events are actually recorded for us to understand the greater deliverance from sin that Jesus won at the cross. How much more certain can we be that on this side of the cross, in an empty tomb, that that God is in control of our lives and God is working his purposes out. But what should we do? when we are struggling with the traumas of life, when we think things are out of control? Well, the answer is given in those last three verses of chapter 2. We should pray and trust the God who knows. I think it was Alec Mortier who said that chapter 1 tells us that the people of God cannot be destroyed by human agency. And chapter 2 tells us that the people of God cannot be delivered by human agency. So how should we respond? What is the resource open to us to give relief? Note with me, it's not just in the passing of time, verse 23. During that long period, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, but they were still slaves. And it's not found in trying to elect a better pharaoh. It's not found by taking force into our own hands. Their relief is found in prayerfully entrusting themselves to God. The people cried out for help. They cried out for help because of their deep sense of need. And that's the very reason that their prayer was heard in heaven, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And the reason that relief is found in heaven is because God is a faithful God who keeps his promises. Look at verse 24. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, the the promise that he had made to them. Prayer is a powerful resource to God's people because we have a God who hears, a God who remembers his covenant promises, a God who sees, a God who knows and it's not merely an intellectual knowledge that the sense of uh, of the word the phrase that has been translated uh, quite rightly i guess by the niv in that way that 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 the god who knows is is saying that the god was concerned about them that's how the translators have translated that that word he's concerned about them he feels our needs they're at god's right hand in heaven Today, we have a Savior who knows what it is to suffer, who knows what it is to be despised, who knows what it is to be rejected, to suffer deprivation and desolation, to be tempted. And God has acted in a mighty way to save. And so we can fear and trust Him in our workplace, in our home life and situation, in the trials in our disappointments, 
we can fear and trust him and call out to him in prayer because God is the God who knows and who cares. Annie Johnson Flint, uh, who died in 1932, endured the onslaught of rheumatoid arthritis at a time when there were very few medications to help. And she spent most of her life not leaving her bed. She suffered serious bed sores right through her life. And she finally died of cancer. What a miserable life. And yet here's her testimony. She wrote it as a poem. Again, I think it's been made into a hymn. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So what should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Let's trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you have compassion on this world that you've created. And we want to thank you that in your mercy and grace you've chosen a people for your own glory and you are more than able to redeem and save, to sustain and to keep. And so we pray as we, as we reflect on your word that you would grow our faith and confidence in you to trust you even in the darkest trials of our lives. Minister your grace afresh this day to your needy people, we ask, that we may rejoice in you. We ask this in Christ's precious name.